Hello, and welcome back to Dragonfruit. My name is Caroline Chang, and today's guest is Paul Stenier. Paul is a second-year PhD student at the University of California, Los Angeles Institute of the Environment and Sustainability. He is also a graduate research fellow at the UCLA Luskin Center's Climate Adaptation and Equity Initiative, which is headed by Professor Ji Sung Park. Overall, Paul's work focuses on the effects of climate change on working conditions and food security. I am so excited for you all to hear this interview. We touched on a wide range of topics from academia to equity and solution implementation, and I hope you enjoy. So thank you for being here. Um, I'm course, really excited yeah. to talk to you today. Yeah, if you want to- Thanks for just, having me. Yeah, of course. If you want to just introduce yourself really quick. Sure, yeah. So I am Paul Stanier. I'm a second year PhD student in environment and sustainability at UCLA. And my focus is primarily in food systems and how climate change is going to affect our food systems, both in terms of food access and more recently in terms of how climate change is threatening uh, work conditions for workers in our food systems. So starting with the food security, can you, I guess, describe some of the impacts that climate change will have on food security and in what ways climate change could exacerbate already existing food inequalities? Yes, totally. So there's, there's a lot of different angles to this, so I'll try to keep it brief and systematic. But kind of at the most basic level, there's a pretty clear link between temperature, weather in general, and crop yields. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, for example, we see that at really high levels of uh, temperature, there's crops start failing, and that's just a biological thing. Like, yeah. what you see, reach a certain temperature... Um, different crops have different thresholds, but basically there's a pretty clear relationship that above a certain temperature, any additional heat heating time is detrimental to crops. And that has direct implications, not only for food supply, but also for the incomes of farmers. And that plays out differently in different contexts as well. And more broadly, there's effects of temperature on income. Mm-hmm. not only in the agricultural setting, but in other settings as well. So for example, um, let's say you're working, you have someone who's working in a factory that doesn't have air conditioning and they're paid by the amount of output that the factory makes. Well, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a link between hotter temperatures and slow down productivity. And if that then affects someone's income, then they have less money to, to feed themselves and their family. Um, Higher temperatures also increase other bills you might have to pay. So there's, you know, an increase of injury risk and of, of illness risk with higher temperatures, and that can directly in, impact your, your budget if you're facing, you know, new medical bills. Yeah. And uh, when it's hotter, you want to protect yourself by running your air conditioning. Mm-hmm. That costs money too. Um, so basically, increased costs, decreased income, threats to the food supply, um, and that's that's all true across different contexts and it's, it looks differently. So some of my research has focused on the U S and some of it has focused on rural India and things look different in each context, but the basic structure is the same. So do you think that the main impact of climate change with food insecurity and everything is going to be the monetary aspect of it? Or do you think it's more going to be, just the accessibility of food in general? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think that that's still very open for debate in some ways mm-hmm. um, because I think that the, the like, if, you, if you're talking in percentages, the link 
the direct link between higher temperatures and therefore climate change and negative outcomes is probably stronger in the agricultural space. So like hot temperature decreases yields by more than it decreases income or increases injuries, for example. Yeah. But given that in the US or globally, we actually produce a lot more food than is necessary to feed the population. Mm-hmm. That doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be like a direct and noticeable increase in food prices or um, any kind of like food shortage situations, because there's okay. a lot of you know, ways that international trade can kind of balance things out. Mm-hmm. And so if it was really hot in Iowa, for example, the U S could get grain from either a different part of the U S or from outside the country. Um, and so I guess I don't, yeah, I, I can't say one way or another that it's definitively the income accessibility issue or like actual food prices that are going to change or like mm-hmm. shortages. But I would say that my work has primarily focused on the, the income and like accessibility from that angle mm-hmm. um, type of questions. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, if we can figure out how to allocate the amount of food that we're producing, all yeah. right, then climate change's impact on food supply won't actually necessarily be a huge deal. Okay. Um, but that's a big if. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, so can you talk about, so you said you work on things with India and then with the United States. Mm-hmm. I guess, can you talk about what the differences are going to be? Because obviously they're very different countries in very different yes. conditions. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So the major difference is that India is still a very agricultural country. Okay. So about, I want to say about 60%, I, don't quote me on that. Okay. <laughs> Around 60% of India's population still works in agricultural to some extent. Mm-hmm. And so when we're talking about, you know, the impact of climate change on people's incomes, given that the agricultural link is very strong, that has a much more direct impact and more noticeable impact in India than it might have in the U S where a much smaller fraction of our country's overall productivity and our workforce is actually working in, um, in agriculture. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's one major difference. Another difference is that a lot more, I mean, this, this is true for a lot of families in the U S as well, but it's true for even more in India Mm-hmm. where you have a lot of people who are really living on the margins uh, between being food secure and being food insecure. And okay. a sm- like a relatively small climate shock can be, can cause uh, relatively devastating effects on their food security outcomes. Mm-hmm. And I think the third, the third major difference is given how agricultural people are and how a lot of the agriculture in India still relies on the monsoon and rain fat agriculture and climate conditions a little bit more than, than in the U S even the effects of local weather mm-hmm. are more pronounced than in the U S. So for example, like if we have a heat wave in LA, yeah, that it causes all kinds of problems, but that's not really going to be a direct threat to LA's food supply or people's ability to feed themselves as much as it is if a particular region of India has a heat wave or really bad rainfall one year. Mm -hmm. So what kind of, okay, this might get a little technical, but what kind of tools are you using to 
analyze all of this and like how do you decide what kind of data is going to be the best representation yeah absolutely so what i use is a set of tools that's broadly called econometrics Mm -hmm. and what that is it's statistical analysis with the goal of finding causal relationships from Mm -hmm. real world data so if you imagine that you have a laboratory setting let's say you want to see the effect of some drug on mice then you have your control mice and your experiment, you know, your test subject mice and you inject the drug in the test subjects and you don't in the control. And then you can just directly look and say, okay, well, these mice got the drug. These mice did not. Right. Mm -hmm. The difficulty with human subjects and real world uh, question or real world populations and questions like things of, of, um, around climate change or food security is either it's impossible to do an experiment in that setting Mm-hmm. impossible either for costs or um, just like literal feasibility mm-hmm. even w- without costs in the equation or it's totally unethical right so if, if my yeah. outcome variable is something like food security and we know that food has a very direct uh, impact on people's health and well-being mm-hmm. you know you don't want to design an experiment where it's like well let's see what happens if these people have bad weather and these people yeah. don't, you know what I mean? Yeah. And on top of that, the questions that I'm asking right now, at least it's a, it's a question of, okay, how does weather impact food security outcomes? Well, I can't control the weather. <laughs> so I can't, <laughs> yeah. you know, even if I mm-hmm. could, I wouldn't want to because it's unethical. And even if I brushed those ethical implications aside, I wouldn't be able to because I can't control the weather. Right. Um, And so what we do instead is look for historical data. Oftentimes, this is the technique that I've mostly used is look for historical data. And then using a series of statistical, statistical, statistical techniques, Mm -hmm. I then try to tease out the direct causal relationship of let's say one extra day above 90 degrees Mm -hmm. on food consumption. And the way I do that is by trying to average out the local average conditions and whatever fluctuations may have happened for that particular year. Um, So to take an example that's relevant to to LA, let's say I'm looking at the impact of hot weather on energy consumption, Mm -hmm. okay? So if I'm just comparing East LA, which is very hot, to Santa Monica area, which is relatively cooler within the mm-hmm. LA context, yeah, um, and I'm looking at energy consumption, well, in East LA, it's a lower income population than in Santa Monica. And so energy consumption is a little bit lower because people mm-hmm. don't have you know, the same expensive appliances and big homes, et cetera. And so if I just do that direct comparison, then it might look like oh, well, where it's cooler, people are using more energy. So hot weather decreases energy consumption. Okay. But we know that that's not really what's going on. There's a third uh, variable at play, which is income or wealth, which Mm -hmm. influences both the weather that people experience and the energy that they're consuming. Mm -hmm. So what I need to try to do is isolate kind of within Santa Monica changes and within Glendale changes and then I can say, okay, on a hotter day in Santa Monica, relative to what Santa Monica normally experiences, what does weather, what does energy consumption look like in Santa Monica? Mm-hmm. Do the same for Glendale. And then I can get some kind of like relationship between uh, temperature and whatever outcome I'm looking at. In this case, energy consumption. Mm-hmm. Part of your earlier question was how do I decide what data to use? Well, partly it's, 
partly it's just a question of what data exists. Right? Yeah. Um, and so I think the process that I've most appreciated from the mentors that I've worked with at UCLA so far is mm-hmm. one where I start, start big picture and think, okay, what's my question? What would the ideal data set look like okay. to answer this question? And then you go and try to find the closest thing. And that might mean merging data set A with data set B and data mm-hmm. set C, or it's all in one data set, whatever that may be. It be, that ends up being one of the more creative sides of the work is trying to find out, okay, this is my question. How do I get closest to answering it given mm-hmm. the data that exists? And there are some people who data, do the data collection as well, but like actual like surveying or whatever. But what I do relies on data that already is out there. And it's just a question of like downloading it and processing it and matching it with other data sets that exist as well. Yeah, that makes sense. So what solutions are being proposed to address what you're talking about, like the effects that climate change will have on income Mm -hmm. and food insecurity. Absolutely. So right now I would say it's rather piecemeal. Um, There are Mm -hmm. a lot of different solutions, but really there is, there isn't like, for example, there's no uh, hot weather subsidy that exists yet. Right. Like, you know, kind of, I would see, I could see a future where potentially you know, government decides that when it was, ex- when it's excessively hot, we know that there's a range of ways that people are suffering. So let's just mm-hmm. give everyone like 10 bucks for every day that it's over a hundred or something like that. Right. Or if you're yeah. you below a certain income threshold, some of that, nothing like that exists yet, but depending on what you're looking at, there's different protections in play. So mm-hmm. for example, if you're looking at injuries on the job, California and California uh, as expected is a leader in this space within the context of the U S at least in the context of California, on a really hot day, I want to say it's above 85 degrees with potential additional um, protections above 95 degrees. Okay. If it's above 85 or 95 degrees, one of the two, workers are guaranteed the right to shade, mm-hmm. cold water, access to bathrooms, and 10 minutes of break every two hours allocated however the employer sees fit. But basically, this is to protect workers from direct heat exhaustion Mm-hmm. And also from just like the fatigue that can lead to other injuries on the job. So let's say you're climbing a ladder and it's really hot and you're, mm-hmm. you've been working for four hours in a row and it's, your palms are sweaty. You like slip, fall. That's a workplace injury. That's yeah. not usually called a heat illness injury, but mm-hmm. it's still related to the fact that it was hotter that day. And so that there's protections in terms of that. Mm-hmm. Um, California also has an energy subsidy program that's not related to the weather at all. It's just like, if you're below 200% of the federal poverty line, then, so like twice the amount of income as the federal poverty limit, Mm -hmm. then you're allowed to access this subsidy program, which is actually paid for by other consumers. So like you're maybe like, my bill is a little bit higher to subsidize someone else's, Mm -hmm. Um, but that's a 30%. 30 to 35%, depending on the utility subsidy, that's also a California specific thing. Um, and so, and that, that helps to kind of reduce the amount of additional money is that's being spent on your energy bill when it was particularly hot, if you're running your air conditioning. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of individual interventions that exist, but not mm-hmm. necessarily one like, Hey, climate change has these, you know, broad effects and mm-hmm. we're just going to like give people money or something like that. Yeah. But do you think because climate change is obviously such a big overarching issue, it's going to come down to piecemeal solutions like this to end up building up to something big? Yeah. I, th- I mean, I think so. I think I, I have 
never heard of like a politically realistic push <laughs> for some kind of a broad mm-hmm. climate change subsidy or anything like that. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, th- I mean, for, for a lot of reasons, um, mm-hmm. but like you said, it's, it's just touches on so many issues. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And also, for example, the, you know, the, the worker protections are specifically heat related, but the energy subsidy is just an energy subsidy because we rec- recognize that energy has a lot of uses, not just protection from climate change. And so basically the idea is that some policies will be put in place for climate change specifically, and others just exist to help alleviate poverty or the, you know, some kind of hardships in general, and they can also serve as a buffer for the climate change impacts. Mm-hmm. With research like yours that's showing links between climate change and income and food insecurity and just a lot of studies that have to do with even sustainability in general, but climate change specifically, there's a lot of uncertainty involved, even though this type of research should be used to inform policies and things like that. So how do you think the uncertainty can be addressed? And do you think that a preventative approach is always worth it? I don't know if that's a loaded question. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a really great question because it's one that I've been, well, not because, but it's also one that I've been grappling with a little Mm -hmm. bit. And so, you know, the thing is there's a lot of different sources of uncertainty. And I think Mm -hmm. that one of the biggest ones is you can't predict exactly what the climate is going to look like 50 years from now, a hundred years from now, even 20 years from now. Absolutely. Um, and so our models are getting better at that, but embedded in any kind of analysis, like the one that I'm doing, there's this assumption that climate is going to get hotter and mm-hmm. more variable. And there's going to be an increase in the number of days that are, let's say above hundred degrees. And so the, you know, then you look back and see, okay, what's the impact of an additional day above hundred. And then you project that forward and say, okay, well, an additional day above hundred increases, injuries by 0.2 percentage points. So mm-hmm. there's going to be 10 more days of hundred. Okay. That's 2%. You know what I mean? So there's that kind of, yeah. and that, and then you can, from there, economists love to put things into monetary value terms. Yeah. And so then you say, okay, well, there's going to be 2% increase that costs business businesses this much through workers comp claims that costs the mm-hmm. workers this much through lost income or whatever. And then you can kind of, and that is part of the, the push for like really calculating how much uh, does, is climate change going to cost us? And mm-hmm. then from there you can go and say, well, what's the social cost of carbon? Yeah. You know, what is one additional, uh, ton of carbon emissions mean for, uh, the economy in general? And mm-hmm. so, so yeah, there, so I still haven't answered your question. I, re- I recognize, okay. but the question then becomes what level of uncertainty are you comfortable with? Mm-hmm. And, in my mind, it's, it's never a reason to just say, well, we can't do anything because we don't know for sure. Right. That's, yeah. that's not a feasible, that's like, just like not a reasonable way to act. And so there's the, you know, your classic statistical methods for dealing with uncertainty. And you can say, well, is the 95% confidence interval entirely on one side of zero. And then if it is, then you can say, okay, well, it's going to have a positive or a negative impact. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's all great. And I think that's, that's still kind of the, the mainstream way of dealing with things. The, the other hard part about uncertainty and this I'm right at this point, I'm really just spitballing, but okay. in addition to uncertainty being a problem when you have some kind of a point estimate for, mm-hmm. you know, this 0.2% or whatever, yeah, there is uncertainty with how to calculate uncertainty as well. 
And so Mm -hmm. depending on your statistical method, there either is like a standard way of calculating uncertainty that people have developed over, you know, a couple of centuries and is tried and tested. And that's what people use, or there's not. And when there's not, that leaves a lot of room for creative uncertainty calculations that I won't get into, Mm -hmm. but the way that you carry those out can actually influence what level of uncertainty you're assigning to your estimates at the end of the day. And so there's a lot of open questions and part of the work is identifying areas that people haven't touched. Part of the work is also identifying ways to reduce that uncertainty Mm -hmm. and kind of get a better sense of how climate is going to impact our lives in general. And ultimately we need to be comfortable with taking those, those gambles, I think, and just saying like, yeah. Okay. We don't know exactly how bad it's going to be. We can't, I can't tell you it's going to cost us $5 per degree or person or whatever, mm-hmm. but I can tell you it's going to be bad and that this helps to some extent uh, mitigate those risks. And so that's at least worth pursuing in and of itself. I guess moving more towards the climate adaptation stuff that you're doing. So you work with professor, tell me if I'm pronouncing his name wrong, but professor Jisung Park. Yeah, that's right. Right. Okay. At the UCLA Luskin Center's Climate Adaptation and Equity Initiative. That's right. (laughs) Okay. Can you talk a little bit about the work you're doing there? And Mm -hmm. I read the articles about air conditioning and everything and how that also connects to the climate change issue. Totally. Yeah. So Jisung is a environmental labor economist. He's the one I'm talking about the work that I've either heard of or been involved with the data collection process with regards to injuries on, on the job. That's happening under Jisung's direction, essentially. Okay. And that's, that's like one of the main questions that he's interested in. And the two of us together have been kind of, we've been working on this project that's trying to just paint a picture. It's mostly a descriptive analysis of, mm-hmm. you know, what does the future... I guess, what does the future of the labor force look like under a climate change regime and mm-hmm. who's going to be impacted by climate change and who's going to be relatively okay. And there's, there's mm-hmm. intuitive answers to this, but what our goal is to do is to, you know, back up those intuitive answers with data and really showcase like how the dynamics of inequities in our education system play into who is going to be impacted by climate change on the job versus not. And so mm-hmm. what I mean by that is, So the intuitive answer is like, okay, your lawyers and your like sports broadcasters for the NBA are going to be okay Mm -hmm. when it's really hot because they're working in an air conditioned office. Right. Whereas maybe someone like a farm laborer who's working outdoors is going to be more susceptible to the elements. And that's Mm -hmm. both in terms of injury risk and income. Right. Yeah. And ultimately when you, there's, there's a pretty like Jisung basically came up with a pretty creative way of merging a couple of existing data sets. Mm-hmm. Um, one of which is a data set that basically includes a survey of workers in different occupations mm-hmm. and asks them questions among which is how often do you spend in an air conditioned environment on your job? Okay. Right. And we can link that by occupation to demographic characteristics using what's called the American community survey, which is kind of an extension of the census what you can do then is say, okay, well, this is, you know, for job, job a, this is the outdoor exposure score or how Mm -hmm. little time they're in air conditioned environments. And this is the education 
of job A. And then this is the environmental exposure score for job B. This is the average level of education for job B. And then you can get a whole, you know, do that for all the jobs in, in the US mm-hmm. in the categories that they're broken down into. And then you, there's a pretty clear relationship between the more relation, the more education you have, the more likely you are to work in a job that is protected from the elements, mm-hmm. right? So then that becomes a picture of an equity issue where yeah. there's already this inequality in educational achievement and what kind of jobs people have access to. Mm-hmm. But if climate change is going to disproportionately affect workers who already had lower levels of education and yeah. already are part of marginalized communities um, racially and both in terms of edu- like immigration status as well, then mm-hmm. that's just going to further drive inequality. Yeah. And so the kind of the first step of the research that we're doing is literally just painting that picture of mm-hmm. existing inequality that is likely to be exacerbated by climate change in, in the future. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. in one of the articles you sent me that Professor Jason Park wrote, he talks about how putting air conditioners in schools can kind of help close that educational gap. Do you think that's a realistic, I mean, it's not an all-encompassing solution, but do you sure. think it is a realistic solution to address some of what you're talking about? Yeah, so air conditioning is is a touchy subject in the environmental space and for good reason, right? It's, it, mm-hmm. it pollutes a lot. But at the end of the day, what is true is that it protects people from the damages that climate change will bring and already existing issues with just when it's too hot, Yeah, what happens, right? And so- if you see, as Jisung Park outlined in his paper and then the article he wrote as well in USA Today, mm-hmm. there's two things at play. One is that based off of his work, there's a pretty clear relationship between hot days and poor academic performance. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, air conditioned access in the schools helps to mitigate that relationship. And so mm-hmm. what that means is, you know, if you have an air conditioning and it's hot, well, you might just be fine because it's going to be the same temperature as it was going to be, even if it was a relatively cool day. Yeah. That's one. Two, another thing that he highlights is that schools with predominantly black or Latino student bodies mm-hmm. are far less likely to have access to air conditioning yeah. than schools with predominantly white student bodies. What an economist will then do is say, okay, well, what does that gap look like? And then how much protection does air conditioning provide from the damaging effects on learning of Mm -hmm. high temperatures? And therefore, how much of the racial achievement gap can be explained by school infrastructure, in this case, air conditioning? Yeah. Right. And that says a lot. And at the end of the day, it's, as far as I understand, like a relatively cost-effective solution. Mm -hmm. Um, It obviously comes with its it's issues and, you know, not all buildings can just throw in air conditionings and be fine. Um, yeah. There's a lot of difficulties in retrofitting as well, mm-hmm. but it's definitely as far as is possible, something that I think people should be, school districts should be working towards with the help of the federal government, because, you know, mm-hmm. as we know, school districts in marginalized communities don't have the same funds as those in, in wealthier ones. Yeah. And pe- it's not like schools don't have air conditionings because they didn't want to, right? It's because they can't yeah. afford it. So yes, in short, I think it's a a valuable and important tool to help address existing inequality and inequality that could be further driven by climate change in the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you touched on the fact that you wrote an article 
with IOES at UCLA, but in the article you talk about some solutions that can make air conditioning more of a win-win mm-hmm. versus a win-lose in terms of the emissions that are put out by air conditioning units. Could you talk a little bit more about the solutions and the ideas that are surrounding it right now? Sure. Yeah. So full disclosure, this is not my area of expertise, Yeah. but I can at least highlight this, the, the solutions that have, that exist. So one of them is, is fairly straightforward. It's just making our electricity grid more renewable, right? And air conditioning mm-hmm. runs on electricity. If that energy is coming from a solar panel or from wind energy, then there's the, the wind loss trade-off of cooling, producing carbon emissions, which drives more heating, which needs more cooling. Mm-hmm. You kind of are able to nip that in the bud. Another one, and, and this is more relevant for newer buildings than for mm-hmm. or like, you know, new projects is just smarter building design. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of ways that communities have found in particular indigenous communities in the US and elsewhere to just stay cool without needing to pump cold air into the space that you're living in. Yeah. And there's a lot of, a lot to be said for just more efficient insulation and Mm -hmm. better design of buildings for it, for both airflow, but also for, I guess insulation is really the word. And then there's other cooling technologies. And this is where I'm least Mm well-versed that don't actually require much additional energy or that piggyback off of other processes um, that are already going on in the background of the building. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, a lot of ways to make this happen. And I, so that's, that's one of the reasons why I think that the like kind of gut reaction against air conditioning is yeah. a little bit um, too pessimistic because mm-hmm. there are ways to make it a win-win. Yeah. Um and then also, I just want to, again, highlight that right now, the people who don't have air conditioning are A, people who are already vulnerable and B, people Absolutely. who by and large have not contributed to the problem of climate change. Mm-hmm. And so it's, in my opinion, really not the place of the environmental movement to tell uh, low-income school and a particularly Black district in Louisiana that, no, you shouldn't be installing an air conditioning because that's bad for the environment. Yeah. Meanwhile, they're, you know, just suffering the consequences of climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Kind of along with what you just said, and I guess this can be in ter- both in terms of food insecurity and what you were talking about with adapting to a changing climate, you know, how can scientists and policymakers and all of these people working in sustainability include the communities that are experiencing the greatest negative impact of climate change? in their process of finding solutions and implementing solutions? That is a great question. Um, so the, the short, it's hard, but necessary. Mm-hmm. And um, in that, I mean, there's a couple of things at play here that make it hard. One is that the academic institutions, the system in an academic institution is not in line with doing research that heavily involves uh, a community that you're working with, mm-hmm. partly because there's this pressure to publish. Yeah. And when you're working with a community, things just take longer, right? If you want to do that work correctly, then you need to have, you know, you need to set time aside to sit in meetings, 
um, there's a whole issue of gaining trust of a community, which takes a very long time. And Mm -hmm. rightfully so a lot of communities, especially those that are at the the front lines of climate change impacts Mm -hmm. are distrustful of academic institutions Yeah, because they've just been exploited as research subjects for so long without seeing any kind of gain. Um, And then if you want to talk about, you know, compensating people for their time and not making sure you're just leeching off of their experiences or their misery in order to publish something, then you need to find funding as well for that. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of things that are in the way. And the most successful model that I've seen of this, what's called community-based participatory research Mm -hmm. is when the professor has tenure and a lot of time and a lot of motivation Mm -hmm. and it requires also, I think, a different set of skills than, than a reward in academia. Um, you know, especially in, in economics, from what I've seen so far, there is somewhat of a primer placed on what I would call intellectual posturing and shooting people down for not being as smart as you are. Yeah. And if you go into a community setting and you want to gain their trust, that's not at all how you can operate, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it requires a lot of empathy and ability to listen and ability to, and humility, I think. And that's not necessarily in line with what uh, academia rewards. And that's not to say that there are not a ton of uh, professors. And I've been very, very fortunate at UCLA to work with and meet professors who have those, those traits, Mm -hmm. but then it becomes a question of time as well. And so that's the hard part. That's what makes it difficult. And what makes it necessary is that ultimately Like if I am a researcher, you know, like we can just take the example of air conditioning. There's a series of possibilities that could, you know, help turn AC into a win-win, including the electrification of the grid or Mm -hmm. better new building design or different kinds of air conditioning systems. And if I don't know what's going on at the ground level in a community, there's Mm -hmm. no way that I could tell them which of those three or many solutions is the best to implement, right? Yeah. Like if, if it's a situation where new building design is going to be totally infeasible because they just built a school and it didn't happen to, to meet the standards that we would, would like, mm-hmm. then, then maybe you focus on the electrification of the grid or installing solar panels or something like that. But if, for example, you have maybe seven years down the line, they're planning on building a school mm-hmm. or re, you know, revamping a school building, um, then, then maybe, you know, the, the infrastructure design is, is the way to go. And so, um, ultimately solutions that work oftentimes are solutions that are, uh, I mean, people know best oftentimes what, what they need. And so mm-hmm. if you just go in and say, well, this is what you need, uh, then that's not particularly useful. And yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Also along with that, I mean, this is just an opinion question, but do you think even with other countries, like developing countries, do you think it's more likely that they will just run their course and then once they're at a certain point, then move towards sustainability? Or do you Mm -hmm. think there's a way to start the sustainability aspect of development sooner? Because obviously this is a big question that's up for debate, but just what's your take on that? Yeah, totally. So, I mean, my take, I think is a, is is a is a rather optimistic one kind of in mm-hmm. line with my general worldview mm-hmm. um and it's centered around 
I guess two main things. One is that humans in general do a, a great job of learning from one another and mm-hmm. of sharing resources. And I think that given what we know now, both about what the impacts of pollution and climate change are on human health mm-hmm. now and potentially and likely in the future, and what is possible in terms of creating energy that is clean, mm-hmm. that there is a world in which, you know, life-changing increase in electricity and internet access can happen in a cleaner way in contexts where a lot of that is still being rolled out. Yeah. And, but at the same time, we need to make sure that it becomes and this is, this is kind of like the working with communities that need it yeah. um, at the global scale. Mm-hmm. What we need to avoid is a situation where the U.S. and Western Europe are just pointing fingers and saying, yeah. you know what, like we did that back in our day, but we know that's bad. And therefore you cannot do that now. Mm-hmm. And instead, I think that, you know, countries that have benefited from the burning of fossil fuels in the past, instead of just saying, well, we all need to be on the same playing field now and you can't burn fossil fuels, need to actually subsidize and work with, subsidize clean technologies and Mm -hmm. the deployment and expansion of clean energy in developing contexts and make sure that it's as, uh, participatory a process as mm-hmm. possible and the thing is like and this is something i'm actually I, there's this book called the grid i don't remember mm-hmm. the author's name but i'm really excited to read it but it's basically about the the institutional history of our electricity grid mm-hmm. and it turns out if you know i think one of the takeaways either from that book or for people that i've spoken to who are in this area is that if you want a clean energy system mm-hmm building a big centralized grid where all the energy is being produced and then distributing it out is not necessarily the best solution. Yeah. Right. So for example, I have a friend who's from Lesotho and it's a country, a country that's entirely inside of South Africa. Okay. Um, and, and he grew up in a house where there was no electricity mm-hmm. and is now working as a PhD student um, in electrical engineering, trying yeah. to figure out, how to create like low cost um, solar energy systems that can then be used as part of the rural electrification of mm-hmm. his home country and other developing countries. Yeah. And so that kind of thing gives me a lot of hope where it's like, well, you know, there's a lot of people who don't have ener- electricity and for better or for worse, a lot of the renewable energy systems that we have or energy, energy solutions that we have, actually rely or work better in a decentralized system. So let's not make the same mistakes of first, you know, making this big central electricity grid. And instead let's roll out these systems that are more sustainable in the long run and potentially actually cheaper and easier than like building out this huge expensive infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Um, This is kind of a pivot, but so research like yours obviously could inform policy, but how is it determined? Like what research actually gets used and 
how much research is used. Yeah, that is a really key question in terms of, and it's one that I grapple with. Um, and the short answer is I don't really know. I'm mm-hmm. not quite privy to that world of yeah. like research turning into policy yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with hustle uh, mm-hmm. on the part of the academic. <laughs> like okay. one of the things that I admire a lot in Jisung Park is that mm-hmm. he, he has a lot of hustle and energy in the making sure this turns into policy game. And so that's yeah. like writing those articles, reaching out and connecting with policymakers, mm-hmm. making sure that you're doing research that policymakers want to see. Cause that's mm-hmm. another community, right. That you want to work with is if yeah. you have policymakers, you want to make sure that they're do- that, that you're doing research that will matter to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and you also want to make sure that they're hearing your research uh, yeah. at critical moments and then, so that's one thing. Um, another thing is that it's just a timing thing in a lot mm-hmm. of ways, right? And laws are passed or not at various times, law, like very rarely because that is exactly when the world needed them, right? Yeah. It's because of a lot of, a lot of things Political you can control. And so sometimes you just produce research that at the right, like, at the right moment is being used in a Senate hearing or mm-hmm. um, you're actually called in to testify or something. But, you know, so you, I think as a researcher, my, t- my understanding is that you have to position yourself to be most, the most relevant possible. Okay. But there is always going to be a certain amount of luck and the right timing that's going to yeah. be at play. As with everything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, what role I guess people who are interested in sustainability in general and feel like they should do something, is there a role that they have to play in either pushing research to be more noticeable to policymakers or just things they can do in their everyday lives that can shape things to be better? So I think what's exciting Mm -hmm. and daunting about sustainability issues is Mm -hmm. that it's so big and it touches yeah. so many aspects of life. Absolutely. And it's really one of those situations where we need all hands on deck mm-hmm. and like there's role, there's a role for people who want to produce basic research and add to our understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, just like there's a role for people who maybe want to focus more on scientific communication. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a role for people who maybe want to do a little bit of both. There's a role for policymakers and And that goes all the way down to like, let's say there's the protections for workers against hot weather on the job in California. Mm -hmm. Well, that has so many, like even just that one policy and issue has so many different stakeholders and people working from all different angles. And that can go from like the policymaker at the very top Mm -hmm. down to one of the like efforts that they were making for enforcement because enforcement of this kind of policy is difficult given that they're understaffed and under budgeted is asking people to turn to social media and be like, Hey, was it hot today? And were mm-hmm. you driving by some fields and you didn't see any shade structures near the workers, take a picture, send us your location. And like, we'll know to investigate that particular area. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, and between those two extremes, there's just a ton of people who are doing work 
um, either advocating for better working conditions or, mm-hmm. you know, doing the enforcing or helping workers learn more about their rights or even educating employers. Cause that's a big part of it too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that's, I think a big, there's so much room in, in this movement and that's, mm-hmm. um, and I'm a relatively, I'm a relative newcomer. Like I only really yeah. started seriously thinking about environmental issues and seeing myself as an environmental scientist, mm-hmm. probably when I started applying to grad school, my senior year of college. Yeah. Before that, I was like, I study math and I like food. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know, I'll do something. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't know. It's been such a humbling and amazing experience so far, just like being mm-hmm. amongst people who care so much about this issue mm-hmm. and just notice, just realizing like, there are so many people working on this now. There's also a lot of forces that are working against it. Yeah. Um, I won't name any names, but, mm-hmm. and there's room career wise, but there's also room like you kind of touched on just in terms of what you do daily, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't want to emphasize individual responsibility too much because I think it's a little bit off the mark, but mm-hmm. there, you know, there are still things that you can do. Um, for example, educating yourself on where your food is coming from, yeah. the kinds of working conditions that people are, that are producing your food. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not always a very transparent process and not by accident. Yeah. Um, I'll stop there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, obviously that's a hard question because yeah. like you said, there are just so many things that go into it, but with communicating research, is that something that's often left to the researcher to do themselves or are there other people that would do that for them? Right. So one of the cool things about IOES, so the Institute of Environment and Sustainability, where our PhD program is housed, is we actually have a dedicated communications team. Oh, cool. And so that's, there's like a full-time communications director and then usually two more employees. And then maybe you have some like undergraduate uh, interns or people working there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but their job is to A, make sure that the world finds out about the research that IOES is doing. Mm-hmm. And B, if IOES gets any like requests for um, a journalist at the LA Times, for example, yeah. then oftentimes they take those calls and end up speaking okay. on them. And that's like who you'll see, or they'll direct the person to the best professor that we have in that area. Yeah. And I mean, and so their job is incredibly difficult one and B is definitely a full-time job that an mm-hmm. academic can't just do along yeah. with a normal academic job, unfortunately. Yeah. And so, and there's this, there's, there's this one really cool, this is really cool um, job that this guy named Daniel Swain has put together, mm-hmm. which is basically the 50, 50. So he does 50% of his time. He's producing original research and he's, his whole thing is climate change and fire risks and weather. And, and so he's been very busy recently, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but basically he, you know, through creative, and a creative process of piecing together a couple of different jobs that mm-hmm. he is able to dedicate fully 50% of his time to science communication. And barring that it's very difficult for an academic to really do put, you know, have the time to put in the work yeah. to make sure that their research is being heard outside of the academic silos. Um, and and so, but the thing is, I know that also that not all departments have that. Um, mm-hmm. And I think especially in environmental science or anything related to climate change, 
it does no one any good to produce research that ends up only being read by academics, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think we need to see more of more of those positions, a bigger emphasis on really how difficult science communication is and how much time it takes. And if professors want are expected to do that work as well, then something else needs to be removed from their their plates. Yeah. And also I think that something that we're seeing more of is an understanding that like these are jobs that are so valuable and sometimes even more valuable than just producing the research because without that, then there's no link to the real world. Yeah. Um, and so seeing that as like, a, like you know, as a, a viable career path after getting a PhD, for example, mm-hmm. is something that um, I'd like to see more of. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to ask some questions that more have to do with you. Yeah. Like your experiences. So you were an applied math major. <laughs> at Harvard right. as an undergrad. Yeah. And then what made you decide to go into sustainability versus anything else that applied math yeah. could be used for, which is everything? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, you touched on why I chose applied math in the first place, which was that it, it was a, a strategic cop-out, so to speak, where I didn't <laughs> okay. really have to pick what I was interested in mm-hmm. my freshman or sophomore year, but That's I was smart. still learning skills that I knew would be applicable once I figured out what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And so the applied math department at Harvard has this requirement of what's called a focus field. And okay. so I had to pick a topic that I would apply math to. And really okay. what that meant was like, if I were to write a senior thesis, then it would be in that area. Mm-hmm. And I would, there was like five classes that had to be related to food and math um, or to, okay. sorry, to my focus field in math. And I ended up picking food systems as my focus field. Mm-hmm. And that's not something that existed at Harvard. I had to yeah. kind of beg the applied math department. And I got, I was very lucky to have the support of one of my advisors um, who was super enthusiastic about this. And through that, I ended up doing a couple of research projects. And the first one that I did was about the impact of eating meat on the environment. Okay. And the second one that I did was about the impact of hot temperature on corn yields. And it was like, it became fairly quickly clear to me that, look, if I care about the future of our food systems and doing work that's going to be relevant in this area at all, Mm -hmm. I need to be thinking about climate change as well. And so whether that's in, you know, in the background of what I'm doing or at the forefront of what I'm doing, Mm -hmm. it needs to be part of what I'm thinking about because things are going to change. Things are going to look different and the future of our food systems can't neglect that. Um, Mm -hmm. or any research into the future of our food systems can't neglect that. And so that's what pushed me. So yeah, it's, it was taking like a couple of classes and then the research experiences that just made it so clear that there's all these interconnections between food and our environment and how the climate's changing. And, um, it was like, all right, well, if I'm going to go to grad school, then it's going to be environmentally focused. Yeah. Is that also what made you decide to get a PhD and go to go in? into research and academia or was that another step in the decision process for sure i think i think it was like a combination of factors there one was because i had left what i you know what i was interested in or making the decision around what i was interested in so late in the game Mm -hmm. it was really like junior year that i was like okay i care about food systems um yeah then it was like all right what does that mean oh my god i have three semesters left to figure out what that means like no way that yeah, is way yeah. too little time and I need to keep learning. And I also recognize that I like doing research and that the skills that I had and 
the training that I had and the interest that I had all kind of pointed me towards doing uh, academic research, at least for a bit. Yeah. And then that entailed getting a PhD. Um, and part of it also is just that when my friends were applying to jobs senior year, I just mm-hmm. couldn't see any that I really saw myself being interested in working in as much yeah. as uh, I would be interested in working in the thing about, so academia has a lot of issues, a lot. Um, and it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's certainly very far from its ideal state, but at least from the way I see it is at least the underlying core value Mm-hmm. Or ho- the hope is that everyone's working together to produce knowledge, yeah. right? Whereas at a company, everyone's working together to produce profit. And right. that has a lot of value as well, especially the way that our world operates. Yeah. Um, but for me, it was like, I would at least for the time being much rather be in a situation where knowledge or the closest thing to the truth is the end goal at least in ideal terms. And so um, that plus just not really seeing any jobs that I was excited about Mm -hmm. um, just kind of solidify that decision. So you also worked a year before entering your PhD program, right? What was that like? And would you recommend that for people who are looking to go to grad school? Yeah. So I had a little bit of a different experience than I would say most people who worked because I was actually brought on as a full-time research assistant Mm -hmm. for Jisung. And my advisor, Alan, my eventual advisor in the PhD program, Alan Barreca. And Mm. so they were both labor, sorry, they're both environmental economists. um, And basically I was just brought on as the guy who dealt with the data and did lit reviews and that kind of stuff. And so I was still in an academic environment, Mm -hmm. um, but I was on a nine to five schedule and I rec and, and uh, so yes, absolutely would recommend taking time off before going to grad school. Um, obviously I don't have, I don't know what it would have been like to go straight into grad school. I'm sure it would have been fine. And I know, you know, some of my friends in the program have done that and it was obviously fine for them, but I mean, so I got lucky in that my job was directly relevant to what I ended up doing during my PhD program. But that's, I think true, even if you don't work in an academic context, like Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people have their research questions informed by work that they've done before coming to grad school. So professionally, I think it makes a lot of sense. Personally, it makes a lot of sense as well, because I just think it's really healthy to have a little bit of a break from the like, like the academic pace, the pace of academics, uh, which is very like stop starty and you're never really fully off and all that. It's yeah. it's a very different beast than like if you can find yourself a nice nine to five job where Friday at 5 PM, you're like, okay, brains off. Like see yeah. you on Monday. <laughs> yeah. um, that was great. Uh, and, and being in LA for a year before starting the program really helped as well because, and having weekends to do things mm-hmm. in LA that were fully free because uh, LA is a beast and yeah, it's a hard sure. place to, if you don't have the time, it's a hard place to like fully take advantage of. And so, so yes, absolutely would recommend getting a job and it doesn't even have to be remotely related to what you end up doing. But I think that, you know, you get some perspective that's valuable when you're applying and that's valuable when you're in the program. So would recommend. And then as a PhD grad student, you also work in the program, right? Either as a teaching assistant right. or research assistant. So how did you decide which one to do? I I think you've done both. 
Yes, right? that's right. Yeah. I've yeah. Done both. So, so how do you kind of decide, okay, this quarter I'm going to be a TA, this quarter I'm going to be a research yeah. assistant? Um, so there's a lot of different ways to decide. I, I've had a fairly smooth path in terms of deciding that partly because basically part of my program in order to be admitted, the faculty member that vouched for me, yeah. who ended up being Alan, my advisor, had to have one year of funding that he could dedicate to me. Okay. As long as I worked with him. And mm-hmm. so that uh, ended up being, he ended up needing a research assistant more than he needed a TA. And so I ended up starting working as a research assistant in the, my first quarter at UCLA. And we were just work like continuing the project that we had been working on in the previous year. And Mm -hmm. so that was a very natural step and process. Um, If, if I were just coming to to the school for the very first time, then it would probably be a question of like, okay, does Alan need a research assistant more or does he need a TA or whatever? Mm -hmm. Um, And then because I had been a research assistant for, for a whole year and then for a quarter as a part-time research assistant, um, in my PhD yeah. program, I decided, all right, I really want to try teaching. And I know that long-term teaching is one of my potential goals. Okay. And so I just needed to, to like get that experience. And so, yeah. so it's, it's a question of like, what do you, what kind of skills do you want to gain? Mm-hmm. Um, and then also what need is there? Um, yeah. And it's not straightforward. Like it becomes kind of, a, it's a little bit like filling in a puzzle and I'm lucky this year to know that my full year I'm, teaching as part of the food cluster because yeah. it's a year-long commitment and it's nice because it's like at least I don't I don't have to worry at all about like what's happening in the spring yeah know? yeah but otherwise it's like every quarter you're kind of like okay planning ahead fitting what this do I in. do next yeah, yeah exactly do you have any advice for younger students like myself between whether to go to a master's program or a PhD and how to apply to a PhD program Sure. Yeah. Um, so choosing between a master's and a PhD is important. I would say that a master's only really makes sense yeah. if there is a very specific technical skill that you want to learn because okay. masters ultimately are expensive. Um, yeah. So for example, I have a friend who studied neuroscience in undergrad, but was at a small liberal arts college without a lot of, um, without a big reputation and he wanted to do neuroscience like neuroimaging and he didn't get the experience to do that in undergrad and so he came to usc and did a year-long master's in neuroimaging and then from that he was able to get jobs in neuroimaging and that that to me is like the prime example of when a master's makes a lot of sense it's like literally the job that he were interested in was interested in he could not have done without this master's and so he went and got it and then did that um if you don't have that in mind, then it becomes hard to justify the expense of a master's because it's like a whole yeah. nother year of undergrad or more mm-hmm. um, if per year of your master's. And so yeah. tuition wise, it's a big, you know, and you're not earning usually. Um, so, but if you can figure out some kind of funding package, that's awesome, right? Um, PhDs are different where you have to want to, you have to have, you don't have to have specific questions in mind, but you have yeah. to be, motivated by broad like a broad idea of like okay i want to spend time answering questions and really digging deep into them yeah because it's a it's a long process i mean i'm only done with one year but it's i, I can already see that it's going to be a you know uh a slog 
um, yeah. the next four years are going to be long and intense. And that's, you know, you have to want that. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, like y- you just got to think as well, like, okay, that's five years of my life where I'm not going to be earning what maybe a normal applied maths graduate can earn. Um, yeah. And, you know, you, you got to think that like, I, I can't, I guess it's kind of the opposite of the masters where for me, at least like a master's is very much in my mind, like a stepping stone to like the next thing. A PhD also opens up this whole world of academia to you and, you know, gives you a lot of credibility and it can be really useful depending on the field you're trying to go into or necessary even. But if you're just thinking of it as a stepping stone, it's going to be really hard to find the motivation, I think, um, to just go ahead and do it. Yeah. Um, and then as far as advice for applying to PhD programs, the main piece of advice I'll give is get to know the faculty in the program okay. and to the best of your ability, make sure there's someone on the inside that's vouching for you. Yeah. Because as much as it looks like a college application process, it's not. And yeah. it looks like it because there's personal essays and there's your GRE score, hopefully mm-hmm. not for too much longer. Um, they'll get rid of that. <laughs> I hope one day soon. Yeah. Um, and then there's your letters of recommendation and then your resume or whatever. Ultimately though, it really matters that for a lot of the programs, especially the kinds of programs I was applying to, mm-hmm. it mattered to have someone on the inside who wanted to work with you and wanted to take you on as a student. Yeah. Because if you don't have that, then oftentimes you're just going to be totally overlooked by the committee because there'll be enough people, enough students who have applied who have that to fill up all the spots and yeah. then by the time your name is even brought up, it's like, okay, well, who's going to take the student? Well, no one. Okay, cool. Like, next. you know what I mean? So <laughs> yeah, yeah. that depends. I think that there are, there are some programs that are bigger and where you find your advisors later in your PhD program rather than at the beginning mm-hmm. that work a little differently. But as far as like my experience was that every program that I either got accepted at or rejected by, I got the news first from a professor Okay. And then from the program, it was like, yeah, I've decided to take you or like, I don't have room for you in my lab. I'm sorry. And then yeah. like two weeks later, it's like, congratulations or sorry. So, okay. that, yeah. Making I mean, those that makes sense. Yeah. Is that process just a lot of cold emailing? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Basically it's cold emailing. It's putting yourself on the radar. It's talking to professors that you know from undergrad who potentially have connections in departments that you might care about. Okay. And maybe then it becomes not a cold email, but an introduction email from the professor, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? So, yeah, yeah. but you can't be afraid of the cold email and the cold email has to come from a place that seems genuine and not get me into like a you're just program. like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Thank you for your time. Yeah. Thank you for coming. Thank you for your time. Absolutely. Um, you're doing awesome work. Yeah. Appreciate it. It's really great to hear about it. Yeah. Good to talk to you. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard or you learned anything at all, feel free to share the podcast. And if you want to learn more about Paul's work, go to ios.ucla.edu. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.